The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, welcome back to South Africa after a long two-week stint in Beijing, experiencing FOCAC. And uh, and you you were here one month before a very, very major event when 50 African leaders will be descending on China to meet with President Xi Jinping in Beijing for the upcoming Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. It comes around every three years. And really on the calendar this year, it's probably one of the most important summits for any African leader who is going to be in attendance. And it's going to take place at an absolutely fascinating time in Chinese politics, where we are now confronting tremendous risks to the Chinese economy as a result of the ongoing trade war with the United States, which has the potential to cause massive economic disruption here. And there's a lot of concern about what's to come. But at the same time, Chinese political power on the global stage is also steadily rising. Last month, Xi Jinping closed the deal on a $23 billion aid and loan package in the Middle East, something very, very similar to what he's going to do at FOCAC next month. Uh, China is also aggressively pushing new free trade deals with the European Union, with its Asian neighbors. And Beijing is also assuming leadership on the global climate front as the U.S. pulls back. So there are a lot of of pieces and with so much going on the geopolitical chess pieces are moving all over the board and it's really easy to miscalculate or misunderstand what the Chinese are doing and why. Now, this is so important for African leaders because as they prepare to come here next month for FOCAC, and there's an opportunity here to learn from the United States, where some are arguing now that the whole premise of Donald Trump's you know, assault on trade and the international norms of trade, particularly with China, are based on faulty assumptions. So there are two parts to the American frustration with China that I just want to point out here. One is about the huge size of the trade deficit, and the other involves China's theft of intellectual property. And so to highlight how the Americans may be misreading the situation here in China and the Chinese leadership, I want to play some sound for you from a recent exchange on CNBC between host Joe Kernan and Kevin Rudd. Now, Kevin Rudd, for those of you who are not familiar, is one of the world's leading China experts. He's also a former Australian prime minister and now president of the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York. And here you'll hear that Kernan cannot understand why the Chinese don't get what the Americans want when it comes to intellectual property rights. And Rudd makes it clear that Beijing has something else in mind entirely. What about the, the intellectual property and the way that you need to, to do business in China? Do they have no idea that that's not the way it's really done and that they're... Or do they not care? Well, they, they know deep down stuff. that they steal intellectual property. They know deep down that they, they do some of these things, don't they? Or, or they don't? And they approach IP as a legitimate theft from the West, given what the West has done to China for a couple of hundred years. Which is what? No, no, it's a whole historical thing. I'm not justifying this, you asked me to explain. Yeah, but, but the historical thing is, go back to the opium wars, 
uh, Western exploitation of China. You moved in, forced them to have all that. That's opium. bizarre. So they think okay. that these these things they do now are justified as a. It's an, I'm, ch- as I'm a explaining to you. It's an historic. To their mindset. It's an historically informed mindset, oh, whereby boy. they see these sorts of practices as maybe not desirable, but ultimate payback hmm. uh, for a whole series of wow. things which the U.S. and the West have done to the Chinese. Cobus, it was fascinating to hear the reaction to that, to, to, you know, to the CNBC panel, how they just misread it. And I think there's some interesting parallels here for African leaders as well, how the, to see how the Americans may be miscalculating. And even though the trade relationship between China and Africa is nowhere near as contentious as it is with the Americans, there are also tremendous opportunities for Africans to misread the situation here in China as well. What are your thoughts? I think it's it's a very important point. You know, um, knowledge about China in Africa is, is not is not nearly strong enough. There's not nearly enough uh, resources being put in to build African knowledge about China. This is particularly difficult in the Xi era because because things are moving so so quickly in China and because he himself has been such a reshaping influence um, in in Chinese politics. So a lot of the old rules don't apply anymore. At the same time, what I found very funny in the in the clip was that the hosts didn't seem to completely understand what this kind of historical mindset um, that Rudd refers to, what that actually means and what it, what it implies. But from an African perspective, you, one can understand it very clearly. I think, you know, kind of there's, this, there's, even, a, there's even more resentment towards the West in Africa than in China, I would, I would hazard to think. Um, and China uses this idea of, of redress after, after centuries of humiliation and mistreatment by the West as a very strong rhetoric in China-Africa relations, as, as a, really as a way to, to build solidarity between China and Africa. So I think it's a it's, it's very interesting moment of, you know, to, to see how that political communication is landing and not landing. Okay, so let's dive into the moment and where we are today. And with FOCAC now just again about a month away, we thought it would be interesting to take the temperature and understand the pulse of what's going on here in China. And to do that, uh, I have to tell you, as uh, we don't get many rock stars on this program, but tonight we have a rock star, a genuine rock star in the world of uh, China studies. Uh, Elizabeth Economy, for those of you who grew up and studied in the United States at any major university and took a Chinese political science course, you know the name. She's the director for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also on the Board of Trustees at the Asia Foundation and the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. She's a well-known professor who's taught at the undergraduate and graduate level uh, courses at Columbia, Johns Hopkins, and the University of Washington. More importantly, though, she's just come out with a book called The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. We're going to ask her about that. And for the purposes of those of you who are interested in China-Africa relations, particularly around resources, I cannot recommend enough her 2014 book, By All Means Necessary, How China's Resource Quest is Changing the World. Liz, thank you so much for taking time to join us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's really great to be here. Thank you. Well, so the summit coming up in September comes at a very interesting time for the Chinese. Just this year at the 19th Party Congress, the Constitution was changed to allow Xi Jinping now to be president effectively for life. Uh, We're in the midst of a trade war with the United States. I think there's no way to describe it otherwise. Uh, The Chinese economy is showing some signs potentially of faltering a little bit. But at the same time, we're seeing tremendous confidence by China on the international stage in Asia, uh, in the South China Sea, uh, in the Middle East, as we've seen, on global climate talks. Tell us a little bit about how you see 
the situation in China today, when those African leaders will be getting off the plane in September? Well, I have to say, um, I, I think you've outlined uh, sort of the with broad brush strokes uh, what we've seen uh, emerge over the past five years under Xi Jinping's leadership. Uh, but I also think this is a very complex time uh, right now in China. And uh, Xi Jinping has been enormously ambitious, as we've seen. You know, he, he called for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Uh, he has made significant progress uh, in his uh, major international initiatives, uh, whether that's sort of moving from staking claims around sovereignty to realizing them in the South China Sea or through his Belt and Road initiative, the grand you know infrastructure project, uh, which I think actually is much more than simply that. Uh, but at the same time, he faces some pretty significant challenges on the home front. Uh, he has, you know, worked hard on uh, the anti-corruption campaign, uh, but he continues to face challenges uh, in deleveraging the economy. Uh, we see, I think, tensions broadly through society with the feminist movement and the LGBTQ movement. I think there are issues that China confronts in terms of uh, moving forward with a sort of digital and, and technology economy, but at the same time, not necessarily uh, having addressed what's going to happen to all of those people who are put out of work. And I think we see some initial protests around issues like that. Uh, so there's there's so much going on all the time in China. Uh, but I think what we see is, you know, Xi Jinping continuing with his grand ambition, uh, but at the same time, some questions being raised uh, about just how that ambition is playing out on the international stage. And is he really going to be able to tackle all of those domestic challenges uh, at home? Liz, um, on the global side of, of that of that issue, um, recently we've seen the Chinese government really emphasizing China as a leader in globalization and especially also, you know, really um, focusing on the phrase of a, a shared community for, for the future of mankind. That I've, I was recently in Beijing and that phrase came up over and over. What does China understand under globalization? And in your in your book, you point out that there are some this positioning of itself as a globalization leader contains a lot of of very uh, important paradoxes. Sure. So I think um, yes, she has. Um, moved again um, quite assertively to say that uh, China should be involved in uh, not only shaping uh, the rules of the game, but also constructing the playgrounds on which the games are played. That's from a speech that he gave back in uh, 2014. And I think since then, we've seen, uh, you know, Xi Jinping at Davos stand up and say that China will be a defender of uh, globalization. He certainly asserted that China uh, will remain committed uh, to the Paris Climate Accords, will lead uh, on climate change. Uh, and most recently, in late June, uh, at the Central Party Work Conference uh, on Foreign Policy, uh, he said that China should lead in the reform of global governance. Uh, so there's, again, a lot of ambition there. I think the question is, what does that translate into uh, in reality? And I think, you know, can China really be a leader uh, in globalization when it doesn't allow for the free flow of capital, much less the free flow of information? Uh, can we say that China is leading in global climate change? Uh, you know, CO2 emissions, right, one of the major greenhouse gases, actually increased uh, last year in 2017. Uh, and certainly you can look at the United States and, um, you know, be extremely concerned uh, that the U.S. has withdrawn uh, from the Paris Climate Accords or has begun the process of withdrawing under President Trump. But at the same time, uh, the United States in the United States, CO2 emissions actually decreased uh, last year. So, you know, it's one thing to claim leadership. It's another thing to deliver on leadership. 
Uh, and I think, you know, the other the other thing to be wary of, at least from the perspective sitting here in the United States, I have to say, um, is when you hear phrases like, you know, a shared community for common destiny or, you know, the many different ways that that's phrased. Um, what does that really mean? Uh, so I was just in, in Beijing in mid-July for the World Peace Conference. And what I took away from that uh, was that what that means is really the end of the U.S.-led uh, security alliance system, right? The military system of military alliances with NATO, with countries in Asia like Korea and Japan and Australia. Uh, that's what China has in mind. Uh, and so I think China looks at this moment right now and says, okay, the United States uh, is withdrawing from its leadership position uh, in terms of the international liberal order, and it is our moment to seize. Uh, but what exactly is China going to do when it seizes that moment? What does a China-led world order actually look like? Uh, and I think that's something that we really need to to think through before we embrace the idea uh, that China is, uh, you know, a global leader uh, on par with the United States. So that's the core of the issue is understanding what do these words actually mean. And there's a big perception gap. And it, it always brings me back to uh, Susan Shirk, who is a, a fellow China scholar of yours. Uh, she's a former assistant secretary of state in the United States, and she's now a professor at the University of California, San Diego. And she wrote a book many years ago called China Fragile Superpower. And she told me this anecdote where there was this idea that the Americans thought, what, China's fragile? And the Chinese said, what? We're a superpower. And it shows you the big divergence in perceptions that exist out there about the Chinese from the outside looking in and the inside looking out. And now with Donald Trump really upsetting the international order in so many ways, people are projecting onto China whatever they want to see. They're either seeing China as potentially a, a new hegemon. People are talking about the new colonial power is something, the fear that kind of comes out. Uh, others are talking about it as a new aggressor. Uh, Chinese look at themselves as maybe pursuing their own interests and changing the international rules more to suit their favor. And so I've been curious to hear what, your, what you think the perceptions are because of the ambiguity of the words coming out of Beijing and how, say, people in developing countries in particular should perceive China. Are they going to fill the role of the United States as the global hegemon or are they going to pursue a more narrow national interest of their own, do you think? So I think um, you've put your finger on something very important, which is um, that it's it's easy to misunderstand China, not so much because, you know, what they're saying, you know, is confusing, but I think uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, different voices in China say different things. Uh, so again, it really was just in China this um, past weekend um, in the middle of July, and I heard many different perspectives on what China should be in the uh, sitting on the global stage. I think there is this Xi Jinping vision that China uh, isn't just a rising power, but that China has risen and is, in fact, already a superpower. And in fact, that is a term I heard used uh, by one Chinese scholar who also holds an official position. Right. So I think there's that ambition in that sense that's already out there. Uh, I would say a, a more dominant position that I heard was that, uh, again, that the liberal international order, that we've reached the end, 
right? That it is it is now over, and it is time to be constructing a post uh, world liberal inter- post world uh, you know set of rules um, of international rules, and uh, China wants to play a major role in constructing those rules. You know, what do those rules look like? I'm not sure that China knows exactly, uh, but I think it is uh, probably you know much greater tolerance uh, for uh, different political systems, right? So that you can see what they're doing in the United Nations in terms of trying to um, diminish uh, the importance of individual political rights and and human rights. Uh, I think it means, um, again, the end of the uh, sort of system of security alliances that's been dominated uh, by the United States. Uh, I think it means a greater role for sovereignty uh, in countries, right? So we see that in in the negotiations on things like internet governance, uh, that China wants much uh, greater control over what comes into the country, you know, how that information swirls around in the country and then what goes out of the country. Uh, and so, you know, has very different conception of data privacy and what the free flow of information means uh, when you compare it to, you know, the United States or other, uh, you know, Western or uh, countries or democracies. So I think, um, you know, you can start to piece together what might be the pillars of a Chinese rules-based system, but it's not entirely clear. And then finally, I heard, you know, not for the first time, but in, I would say, a greater voice, uh, a sense that China had overreached. And I think this I heard mostly from some of the scholars who were concerned about uh, some of the backlash against the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, about how China's assertiveness in the South China Sea had produced also, you know, some pushback uh, from regional countries. Uh, And then uh, I think Chinese influence operations, right? So in Australia, it's become you know, quite concerning. New Zealand, here in the United States, this is being talked about China's efforts uh, to influence uh, the you know, sort of political system to try to shape the narrative uh, about China in ways that uh, aren't really consonant uh, with uh, you know, the way that our countries are governed. So I think um, there, there are many different voices now out there. Um, I think that's one of the challenges. And the second challenge simply is that we oftentimes don't pay enough attention to what actually is taking place on the Round. Uh, so, you know, as I've gone around and, and have uh, been you know, giving some talks about my book, sometimes I am surprised at the extent to which people still think that Xi Jinping is this, you know, man of mystery, uh, when in fact we have already now five and a half years of Xi Jinping uh, led China. And I think if you look at what Xi Jinping, you know, says, if you look at his speeches uh, and then what he does, they track pretty closely. Uh, And so I think there's not that much mystery around Xi Jinping anymore. And I think we don't pay enough attention uh, to exactly what China has done on the ground in terms of understanding uh, who is Xi Jinping and what are his ambitions. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about uh, the Belt and Road. You you mentioned that it stretches beyond um, the simply infrastructure provision. And it, increasingly, it also seems to be stretching far beyond the, the original maps 
of the of the two routes that were that were suggested, um, you know, from about 2015 onwards. Um, I've I've seen a lot of of indications that there are plans to enlarge the Belt and Road, and you know that that you know places like, for example, West Africa would be would be eligible, and and even further afield than that. Um, what do you think the Belt and Road is now, and and is there a is there a, a danger of of it? Either becoming so wide that it loses all meaning, or that as a, as a kind of financial um, venture, it can spin out of control. Uh, so I, you know, I think it's um, it's exactly right. I mean, you know, if you look back in 2013, uh, when uh, President Xi Jinping made the first speech in uh, Astana in Kazakhstan uh, about the Belt and Road, and then his second speech in Indonesia in 2014, and where he laid out the maritime uh, part of it. Um, I, I think it was originally understood, you know, 99% as, you know, infrastructure connecting China uh, through the rest of Asia, um, you know, parts of uh, the Middle East and uh, Europe and into uh, Africa, uh, you know, connecting it through roads and uh, railroads and ports and pipelines. So really hard infrastructure. There was also some mention, you know, when the white paper came out on the Belt and Road of uh, how it could be used for uh, trade and investment uh, agreements and, you know, the spread of Chinese culture, et cetera. So there were some other indications that it went beyond simply hard infrastructure. Uh, but since then, we've also seen it, you know, morph and evolve. So now there's a digital belt and road, right, that includes satellite systems and fiber optic cables and e-commerce. There's a polar uh, ice belt uh, designed to connect China through to Europe uh, more directly. Uh, there's a, um, you know, security component to it. Right. China has established uh, its first military logistics base in Djibouti. Uh, and I believe there will be more to come. Uh, China already controls or has a controlling stake in something like 76, uh, at least 76 ports in 35 different countries. And while it says they're primarily for commercial purposes, uh, we've also seen PLA Navy ships and submarines uh, make some port stops on occasion in some of these uh, countries. And then I would say there's, you know, an emerging political uh, sort of model uh, that is um, being, you know, if, if not exported, at least as Xi Jinping uh, said in his speech uh, back in the 19th Party Congress last Last October, that China has, you know, some wisdom uh, that it is prepared to share with other developing countries concerning the China model. And I think, you know, on the political front, really what this translates into, uh, you know, they'll say political stability, which is really how do you control the narrative in any country? And I think that is translating, and you see this in a number of African countries, to really an extraordinary level of consultation between Chinese officials and African officials on you know, internet control, on managing the media. You know, I saw a comment by uh, the leader of Zambia not too long ago where he said that they're learning from the Chinese on how to control, you know, information and the spread of information from undesirable elements. Right. And I think that's very much in the sort of Chinese model. And so I think, you know, the surveillance system that Beijing has deployed, the sort of extensive system of uh, cameras, they want to get, you know, 600 million cameras, uh, you know, with AI to do uh, facial recognition by 2020. Uh, this kind of surveillance system, they're in discussions, for example, with Pakistan to export and other countries as well. So I think there are uh, the, the Belt and Road has 
uh, evolved and morphed. It's very opportunistic uh, and where China sees uh, opportunities to develop the new types of relationships, again, whether political security or economic, I think it, it takes advantage of those. Uh, but again, I think as I suggested uh, uh, earlier, I, I think there are those in China who are quite concerned that the Belt and Road is running into, you know, many speed bumps and uh, there is some pushback. You know, there are protests in a lot of Belt and Road uh, countries and uh, around the Chinese projects uh, because of the lack of good governance, whether it's environmental uh, or the fact that, you know, 89 percent of these projects are being undertaken by Chinese construction firms uh, or the fact that, you know, the deals were struck, you know, backdoor deals. There's not a lot of transparency. So I think um, China is in a moment of reevaluating uh, the way in which it is uh, doing deals and, you know, constructing projects uh, globally through its Belt and Road. And what I heard in this most recent trip uh, was that there's going to be far less investment and lending uh, moving forward, that they're going to slow the number of projects, the rate of, of uh, expansion down in the next uh, half year to year. So I think we'll have to wait to see, but I think that's telling. And that's really probably the most important point for our audience uh, as it relates to FOCAC, because really the headline that comes out of all of these summits is, what's the number? It went from 15 billion to 20 billion to 60 billion in 2015. And everybody's wondering, what will be the number in September that Xi Jinping will announce? We're hearing rumors of $63 billion in aids in aid and loans that go to Africa, which is a huge number. Uh, 23 billion, in fact, just a couple weeks ago was unveiled for, uh, for the Middle East. And, uh, and that has people concerned that maybe China is spending too much or maybe it's feeding into this narrative that the United States is promoting. And this goes back to when Rex Tillerson was U.S. Secretary of State and he gave a speech at George Mason University warning about China's debt trap diplomacy. And we've talked about this in Latin America and also in Africa. So I guess my question for you is about this question of the loans. So if the Chinese are not going to uh, give the money away in the form of aid, then it will come in the form of grants and loans. And if it comes in loans, you look at countries like Djibouti that has 92% of its debt now to China. 72% of Kenya's bilateral debt is to China. These are unsustainable numbers. So if the money keeps going into developing countries that may not be able to pay it back, what do you think the end game is for China, not only in Africa, but around the world when they're doing this so-called debt diplomacy? No, I, I think that's um, exactly right. And, uh, you know, I want to make clear that, you know, you said that this is a narrative that's being promoted by the United States, but it's not just a narrative that's being promoted by the United States. The International Monetary Fund uh, has come out and, you know, done rankings of these countries and has expressed its concern uh, and is now beginning to train uh, Chinese officials on how to, to, you know, do better, you know, risk analysis and to better governance when it comes to lending. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, if you look at, uh, I think there are a couple points. You know, first, China announces very big numbers always. Um, but in the research that I've, you know, done for many years, uh, looking at China's uh, investment in natural resources globally, typically you find that after about six years, only a third of the pledged investment actually is realized. 
right? So the numbers that are announced initially are enormous, but what you see play out is actually uh, quite a bit uh, less impressive. Still significant, but, but not what you're hearing at the outset. Second, with regard to Belt and Road in particular, you know, the... Um, in the all for all of the Belt and Road, uh, it represents only somewhere between 10 and 13 percent of all overseas Chinese uh, foreign direct investment. Right, the vast majority of Chinese overseas investment uh, goes to the EU to EU countries, uh, and of that. 10% to 13%, half of that goes to just three countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Pakistan. And so, you know, we think in terms of this big investment, but it's not so much investment as it is these loans. And so just lending them uh, the money, tying it up, you know, to Chinese uh, technology, to Chinese know-how and to Chinese labor. And so that is why we're ending in up, you know, with this you know, very serious uh, situation, as you say, for a number of countries, in particular in Africa, uh, where they have just completely unsustainable debt. Then you have a situation like in Sri Lanka, where basically the government says, we can't repay this debt ever. So here, take our port, or really China said, we'll take your port. Um, and so now China has, you know, a 99 year lease on this uh, major port in Sri Lanka. So, um, and that also gives rise to other concerns and calls from local populations about Chinese neo-colonialism. So, you know, what is the end game? I think at this point, um, there are many voices in China, and there have been, frankly, all along, saying that uh, the way that China is going about its uh, Belt and Road financing is not good. Uh, and I think that's why we want to see a switch from China Exim Bank, China Development Bank, uh, to the AIIB, right? Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, because Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank does uh, operate according to global governance principles when it comes to lending. Um, and again, I think we're going to see some changes as China presses forward, uh, because I do think that the sort of uh, critical voices inside the country uh, are, you know, reaching the point where they're actually having uh, some influence. If you had to advise um, leaders of, of smaller and medium-sized economies um, who are worried about about some of the, the grow, China's growing influence, but at the same time dependent on Chinese financing in lots of ways, and also finding themselves in an international you know situation where they're not necessarily getting much of a sympathetic ear in the U.S. Um, and where where Europe tends to be a lot also more focused on domestic issues, um, what are some of the options in dealing with China? How how can they how can they ensure their own uh, domestic um, sovereignty and safety in relation to while also dealing with China? Well, I think um, you know interestingly, you know the United States has. I think, as you're suggesting, remained largely agnostic when it comes to the Belt and Road, or if not agnostic, has not been terribly competitive. That's starting to change. I know that um, the U.S. government is talking about, um, you know, working up policies to develop capacity um, in countries, you know, in developing countries, in some of the poorest developing countries to, to help train officials to sort of think through, you know, what do you need in terms of environmental and social impact assessments and, uh, you know, 
your sort of fiscal assessment uh, of what kind of projects, you know, would be best at this point in time. So not competing on the ground uh, in infrastructure, but at, at helping to develop the capacity of countries to evaluate opportunities, uh, you know, sort of more accurately, perhaps. But I do think you see Australia to some extent, but in particular, Japan and India uh, beginning to offer alternatives uh, in, uh, you know, Asia and in Africa. They have the Asia-Africa um, Growth Corridor, uh, which is, I think, a reasonably nascent but growing effort to uh, offer an alternative uh, to the Chinese way of doing business, to do what they call, you know, high quality infrastructure. Uh, so I think that there are going to be more options uh, for African countries uh, as they move forward and thinking through how they want to develop their infrastructure, but also how they want to uh, develop their healthcare and education and all of the and manufacturing sectors, sort of all of the things that make a, a healthy economy grow. Uh, maybe, you know, not as many grand scale projects as you're going to get out of, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, up front, uh, but perhaps uh, slightly slower, but more sustainable uh, and over the long term, healthier uh, form of growth. Elizabeth Economy is the director for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and also the author of a must read book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. And I say it's must read only because this moment that we're in right now is so complicated to understand and that having some grounding as to where we are and who Xi Jinping is and what this moment in history represents uh, is critical. And there are few better observers than uh, Elizabeth Economy. So, Liz, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. And thanks, Kobus. I really enjoyed it. Kobus, at the top of the program, that soundbite that I played from CNBC, I think offers a cautionary tale to a lot of African leaders. I really, really hope they are reading Elizabeth Economy's book and they are brushing up on their homework because it is so easy right now to miscalculate. And the miscalculations don't necessarily come in confrontational terms. The miscalculation can come, as Elizabeth said, in taking on too much debt, in maybe, you know, engaging the Chinese in the wrong way, engaging the wrong people. And I really hope that the advisors around these various African leaders are doing their homework and really cautioning them about how to engage the Chinese in the best way. Not to say that what, what they're going to do when they come here is going to necessarily be disadvantageous, but these are treacherous times. And the misunderstandings can happen very, very quickly. And I think, as you've pointed out over the years, African leaders and African policymakers' understanding of China has been notoriously poor. And the mistakes today, the consequences can be severe uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you calculate wrong. And so I just hope that they're, they're listening to people like, uh, like Elizabeth Economy. Yeah, I share your concern. I think there is the danger in Africa to have a fantasy of an an unlimited China. You know, China that's unlimitedly rich, um, or that that has that faces no financial dangers of its own. Um, and that's not really the time to entertain that fantasy. You know, kind of the them China's going into a, a very rocky time uh, in relation to trade with the U.S. You know, and uh, there's a lot of concern about that in Beijing, and China. China is, I think, acutely aware of of the need to to make sure that it is it it covers itself, that you know that that its expansion is is centered around itself, um, and Africa needs to make its calculations accordingly. Yeah, I mean, the FOCAC summit comes at such a fascinating time. So I thought it was so interesting that Xi Jinping unveiled a twenty three billion dollar loans and aid package for the Middle East. 
if this economy starts to run into bumps because of the U.S.-China trade conflict and starts to contract as a lot of people think it already is, that may actually slow down China-Africa trade considerably more than it already is. And the fact that Belt and Road is starting to run into problems, as Elizabeth Economy pointed out, is yet another warning sign for Africa. And so the, the problem here may not be actually too much Chinese engagement or too much Chinese involvement in Africa. What if China says, you know what? We don't need as much agriculture. We don't need as much oil. We don't need as many raw materials. And we have a lot of other things that we need to worry about. As, as, as Elizabeth Economy pointed out, the fact that maybe Xi Jinping has overreached a little bit and Africa can be part of that overreach because it's not necessarily a core national security interest for the Chinese. Here in Asia are where most of China's national security interests that are central lie, whether it's the South China Sea, U.S.-China relations, Japan-China relations, Russia-China relations. Africa is really a secondary priority. And so I think we have to look at it both ways. One is too much engagement, too much debt, too maybe too much military, whatever you want. And then the other option here is too little if the Chinese retrench due to the fact that it's coming at such a precarious time in history. Final thoughts from you today, Kovas. I think Africa is to a certain extent taking these dangers in into consideration. You know, so some some of the thinking around the the, the starting of the continental free trade agreement that that was recently signed among most of the, most of the countries in Africa was that that trade between African countries is much too low and that it needs to be bolstered. Um, so you know that's of course a very a very early stage um, and there's a lot of work to be done. But I think there is an awareness that that there is a need to make Africa less dependent on external actors, no matter who they are. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's that's a long road, um, and and I think that there's some short-term planning should should be made as well. Well, it's not going to be boring. FOCAC coming up in just a few weeks. We will see what happens. We will see what the numbers are. We will see if Elizabeth economy is right in terms of how much money is committed. And if the numbers are big, but the actual commitments may be much, much smaller. So it is absolutely fascinating. We would love to have you join the discussion. Kobus and I are active on social media all over the place, particularly me on, on LinkedIn. You can find me where there's a robust discussion going on almost every day. Just look for Eric Olander and you'll find me. Kobus is on Twitter. He's also on LinkedIn. Uh, we're on Facebook and uh, our discussions there as well. What do you think? Do you think the Chinese uh, should give out the big checks or is it time to retrench a little bit and maybe kind of reset the relationship, pull back on the debt, and, uh, and and kind of try to bring some equilibrium to the relationship. Well, we'll see in just a few weeks. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.